to order. Yes. Good morning. Uh, thank you for being here and coming to the final quarterly, thank you, disaster council meeting of the fiscal year. And I am calling the meeting officially to order. Um, my co-chair here, Mayor London uh, Breeze, Chief of Staff Sean Ellsburn. Uh, before we start, um, I would like to take, uh, or I'd like to start the meeting by remembering one of our colleagues and our dear friend, Joanna Ferguli, who passed away last month. Um, I've worked, I worked with Joanna, Joanna all 15 years, really, that I was here. Um, I learned so much from her, um, and she has instilled in me certainly um, values and advocacy advocacy around folks who are the most vulnerable. And as we're gonna talk about later in the meeting, there's some significant risks that we have as a city that, are, that will affect our most vulnerable. And so I just wanna say a few words about Joanna. Um, she was a tra trailblazer her entire life. She was the first person with a disability to attend the public school system in her native Greece. And after graduating from Cal Berkeley, she pursued disability advocacy work at the World Institute on Disability, the Pacific, the, um, excuse me, the Pacific ADA Center, and also the city of Sacramento before she joined the mayor's office of disability in 2006. Joanna played a leading role in, in ensuring that San Francisco's implementation of the America, Americans with Disability Act was consistent with our city's progressive values. Her work helped to ensure that San Francisco moved closer to inclusion and full social participation of all deaf and disabled people. Joanna developed the city's first ever ADA coordinators training academy, and she was equally passionate about employment, transportation, safety, and disaster planning for people with disabilities. Most recently, Joanna's personal testimony about what it, what it is like being a working professional and a mother with a disability helped to move SB 1376, the Transportation Network Company Accessibility for All Act that was, went from an idea to sign legislation just last year in 2018. This ensured that wheelchair us users will have access to on-demand transportation in the near future, not just as non-wheelchair users have now. Most of all though, Joanna's love for her family and her kids was central to her life. She taught them the values that she lived by, that disability, equity, and culture must be continually recognized and never separated from race and class, and that the voices of people with disabilities must always be heard. Her unique style and approach, her humor, for sure, will never be forgotten. I'd like you all to join me in a moment of silence to honor our colleague Joanna. Thank you so much. Okay, we are going to uh, begin our, our official meeting agenda. Uh, I'm gonna be reporting out on last week's, last week or so, um, uh, excuse me, heat response um, for the days of June 7 to June 11 of this month. Um, and so, as everyone knows, I don't need to tell you, most of you were probably here, it got really hot in San Francisco. 
um, unseasonably high heat caused uh, DPH, public health, to initiate their extreme heat protocols. These included um, regular daily DEM uh, incident management calls that we initiated with the National Weather Service and lead agencies, many of whom are here today. Uh, we issued as a city daily situation reports capturing expected temperatures and uh, al uh, alternatives to city services based on the city's heat response. We identified facilities for public cooling. And there was also a robust public outreach, including community-based organization outreach, about which we'll hear a little bit later um, when the mayor is here. Uh, what happened in San Francisco? So, so we did all of this outreach, um, but really, how did it affect us? Um, we had a surge in the 911 system, we re which required uh, the need for in-county and out-of-county mutual aid for emergency uh, services, ambulance services. The last time this happened was in, during the 2017 Labor Day heat wave. Fortunately, our mutual aid plans uh, were implemented and worked like they were supposed to, and we were able to manage the surge. The next step that we're working on is to take a close look at the data to try to really see where these calls originated from, who were the most impacted by the heat, so that we can pre-position and put our resources to where they are most needed. Um, all of this calls for a greater understanding and prioritization of our built environment. Um, the fact is that the majority of our facilities and infrastructures are not equipped to handle this kind of heat. So while other cities in California can handle 90 degrees and up and it's not an issue, why is it such a crisis for San Francisco? And a lot of that has to do with our own built environment. Um, and as, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, so we are working with the city administrator's office, and we have been over the last year, um, but we will continue to uh, look for solutions, not only short-term, but mid-term and longer-term strategies to address and improve our capabilities for providing both emergent heat and air quality relief, but also looking at long-term potential solutions um, for adaptation to these new climate uh, changes and extreme weather that we're experiencing. So I wanna thank everyone, all of my colleagues who came together uh, and got us through, through this and we will be uh, working on this uh, a lot more and we have some more, um, we will have some more conversation about this when we get into some of the PG&E uh, public safety shutoff and air quality issues that are on the agenda further. Um, at this time, uh, we, uh, the public may address the entire Disaster Council for up to two minutes on any item within uh, subject matter that is within jurisdiction of the council. So this is general public um, comments. Do we have any members of the public here that wish to comment? Okay, seeing none, uh, we will move on. So uh, we are, let's see, excuse me. So Mayor Breed will be joining us uh, in a little bit, and at that time we will um, pause the meeting for some special accommodations. Um, now we're gonna ask Brian, where are you, oh, there you are. Can I jump in real quick? Yes, please. Am I on? Hello. 
Okay, well, oh, yeah, there you are. Okay, um, I just really want to, uh, as we uh, start off on the, the uh, tall building strategy, uh, which is the topic that's up next, I really want to just take the time to uh, say this started uh, in 2017. Uh, Mayor Lee then asked uh, the city administrator, uh, the department, uh, the director of emergency management, uh, uh, the director of uh, DBI and also the SF Public Utilities Commission to come together and, and create a tall building strategy for our downtown uh, neighborhood, not just downtown, but SOMA, uh, our financial district. And as we see, it's kind of merging into Mission Bay now as we're thinking about all of our tall buildings. It was one of the strategies in our earthquake safety implementation program. You know, there was a 30-year CAPS program, and tall buildings was one of the initiatives that we would think about after soft stories and uh, private school evaluations. And we uh, worked with the Applied Technology Council to um, find academics in the world and engineers who have not touched any of our tall buildings in downtown San Francisco who could give us an objective thought of how we should think about our buildings, not just at if, how do we survive an earthquake and get out of the building, but how do we make them more resilient? Because more and more people are living in the downtown neighborhood of San Francisco, and we need to rethink not only just the, our building codes, but our recovery plans and how many engineers we have who are, uh, who are certified to be inspectors and help think through our resilience of downtown San Francisco. Um, I really wanna thank BOMA for being an active participant. This last Tuesday, we had uh, Mayor Breed ask us when we uh, put out the tall building strategy in October, she first and foremost wanted us to outreach to all the stakeholders and to find um, and to go into other cities to get best practices. BOMA has been a great participant with us, so thank you for that. And um, there's a lot of great work that came out of this and uh, Brian and his team uh, Danielle Miller have really led the effort working with the Applied Technology Council to really think through 16 recommendations that was presented to the city and how we are looking at them both short-term, mid-term, and long-term, and how we implement those uh, recommendations. So, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Naomi, and thanks, uh, Mary Ellen, and uh, I'm happy to be here a third time's a charm, I think, uh, as I've seemed to get pushed off the agenda, so they, they had us go first, which is great. Naomi already covered some of the information in the first few slides, so I, I can sort of uh, move through it hopefully fairly quickly. But you should have handouts, and I apologize if you can't see the screen up front. Um, but as she said, this is a project that was initiated in 2017, and it was uh, a, a lot of this was work that we'd been thinking about around building performance, but then also around downtown as a different part of San Francisco. You know, emergency uh, plans and recovery plans in downtown are gonna be different than what you're gonna see um, in the Sunset District or, or in other parts of town, uh, clearly just because of the infrastructure there and the tall complex buildings and the impacts that they may have. So that was a big reason that we wanted to do it and we're actually the only jurisdiction that we're aware of uh, in the country and around the world that's looked at tall buildings and specifically earthquake impacts on tall buildings as a set of buildings. So um, if I, sort of move through the presentation here. Naomi already mentioned, I think, some of the, the motivation for doing it. Um, and then uh, if we sort of talk about our 30-year our CAPS plan, and a lot of this falls into that area of do we, you know, of enhanced building performance and how do we begin to think about it? And then also how do we think about our existing building stock, right? It's always much easier to think about making changes to future buildings 
those that are, are not quite under construction, but what do we do about the vast number of buildings that were constructed over the past 100 years? So we looked at these, these different buildings and uh, mapped them out and spent a lot of time with a number of engineering students um, that went to DBI and poured through, I think, 165 different records for tall buildings. These are buildings that are over 240 feet. Uh, and this sort of shows graphically uh, where those buildings are. The, the colored ones in the middle of the map on the left are the tall buildings. Um, the red ones are 240 feet, but then you can see the other ones that are uh, in excess of 75 feet. 75 feet is another important number because that's how the fire department defines tall buildings. And that's based on, Chief, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the, the, how high a ladder can get from a ladder truck. Um, they can get to the 75 feet, but beyond that, the, the ladders aren't effective. So that is, that's sort of the other marker that we're thinking about. If we go to the, the next slide and we begin to look at, this is, again, focusing on districts three and six, um, you can see the percentages of office and residential buildings that, are, that we're having in there. So the, the lighter colored or the, the lighter colored in the bottom right corner there, you can see are sort of hotels, mixed use, residential. Um, there are some medical facilities in there. And then the darker ones, the blue ones, are sort of the more traditional, what you've been thinking about, office or retail. So originally downtown 20 years ago, you know, during the weekends, it was pretty much a ghost town. You could find parking there. Uh, it was easy to get around. <laughs> and now, now you know that's no longer the case, and that's because we have um, really changed it from being beyond just business to, to residential. But that also means that those buildings are now occupied 24-7, not just eight hours a day. Uh, it has a lot of implications for infrastructure. And then for thinking about the types of people that are living in downtown. Uh, and of course, also the impacts on the communities that surround it, Chinatown, Soma, uh, those communities that have been there. If we go to the next slide, you can see the different types of occupancies that I'm, I'm talking about. So the, primarily the residential are moving sort of south of market. They're, the, they're the, resi the red buildings. So we don't see as many of those in the northern area closer to North Beach. Um, the, the red ones down below you are typically in areas where we see a lot of liquefaction, by the way, which is throughout downtown. You can see that sort of shaded on the, on the graphic there. Uh, so that's one of the considerations that we had in San Francisco in, two, in 2007, I believe, was the one that we actually started to implement performance standards for tall buildings. In other words, when you wanted to build a uh, construct a tall building, you couldn't just say it met code. You actually had to verify it with, peer, with having it be peer-reviewed um, to be verified. And we, we recently updated some of those peer-review regulations sort of in response to the Millennium Tower. So that's, that is happening. Uh, and we've actually been leading the way on having those performance standards. That, and those are the buildings that we're, we're not so concerned about. The, the, some of the buildings more in the blue area are older, pre-1990, uh, 1980 steel moment frame buildings where we found after Northridge there were some issues with the connectors with the welds. And those welds showed up after Northridge and there is some concern that we may have similar buildings um, where there's still a lot of, I think, debate even among the engineering community on how, whether, how dangerous these buildings are, but there's they're certainly something we want to look at and that we're going to follow up with. If we go to the next slide, we, we sort of look at some of those uh, structural systems 
that are in, again, and I mentioned now, now they're sort of the greenish ones of those steel moment frame buildings that we want to follow up on. Um, and the, the, and I think I already covered the, you know, the, uh, the shear wall, which are sort of the, the orangish ones where it's sort of a mixture of concrete and shear wall where, where we have a good amount of confidence that those buildings are going to perform well, and those tend to be our more recently constructed buildings. Um, Brian? Yeah. Which are the building types that we discovered after the 1994 Northridge quake are problematic? Yeah, those are the, the steel moment frame ones. So those would be on this, this graph, those would be the green ones, um, Sean, that are down below. And again, there is some question as to how dangerous these buildings really are, and, they, and we've, there have been some anecdotal evidence that shows that they may not be so bad. There's been some, um, but, but again, I think it requires more exploration. We go to the next slide, you look at building foundations, and I think there was a lot of discussion around, hey, every building should have uh, piers that go all the way down to bedrock. And you'll see that there are only two buildings, or there are only a, a small number of buildings that actually do go all the way down to bedrock. They're called drilled shafts. Those are the black ones in the middle. Um, but in fact, we have a lot of other buildings that are map, that are map, uh, map foundations or map plus piles, which we expect are gonna perform very well. So I think that that was one of the things they wanted to talk about in the report as well, is that you, you don't have to all, you know, going down to bedrock is not necessarily uh, results in a better building or better performance. So it, there are a number of other factors they talk about, of course, is the, the depth of rock, like we were saying, the soil type, um, and, you know, whether it's liquefies, but the type of liquefact, the type of soil that's there, uh, building height, um, the slope of the lot, the adjacent structures, groundwater level. We know we're having issues with potential groundwater level increasing, potentially as a result of sea level rise and other issues. That's something we're, we're following as well. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of dewatering that happens with, with a number of buildings um, in downtown um, on a regular basis. So from this analysis, we developed a number of recommendations. There are 16 of them in the report, and I won't go through all of them. Um, I'll just, just mention the, you know, the mayor's executive directive where they, they focus in on what, what we think were the more important short-term issues. And a lot of them were around this sort of uh, regulations for geotechnical issues. And Department of Building Inspections has already begun to issue uh, information sheets for their staff, but we expect those are going to turn into administrative bulletins, which require a more lengthy process um, to implement. And a lot of those are going to be around, uh, again, making sure that we have the proper peer reviews and then beginning to think about higher design standards. If it's a tall building, then maybe it should be beyond code. I think for most of you, you may, you may not be aware that if you build it to the code, it means that it's going to survive after an earthquake. People are going to be able to get out of the building. It's not necessarily built to be reoccupied immediately after the earthquake. So there's, there's some discussion, and we've already seen it at 181 Fremont and some other buildings in downtown where they're going beyond the code. Uh, and we're going beyond the code with some of our city buildings. Of course, fire and police stations are required to go beyond code to what's called an essential services level. But that's another part of the discussion. When would it make sense to go beyond code? Uh, and, and certainly part of that is how much do the buildings shake, and you want some, you know, you want a little bit of flexibility in your buildings so that the structure will stay with it, but if there's too much flexibility, then the internal aspects of the building, the non-structural components of the building could fail. 
So we have some recommendations in here that are really, uh, again, very innovative around requiring certain levels of stiffness in the building, something innovative in, in our country, something they've been doing in other parts of the world uh, for a little while. Finally, some other, uh, some of the other executive directive ones, and this, I think, gets more to the work that we're doing here at Disaster Council, which is around the state safety uh, assessment program and, and how we're sort of being able to get buildings back up and cleared after an earthquake. Um, and, and that was a, a part of the discussion that we had at the Tall Building Summit on Tuesday, uh, where there was a, a lot of folks from different parts of the state uh, around what's, what's the best way to evaluate our buildings. And can people who evaluate, you know, mo there aren't a lot of cities in California with buildings over 240 feet. So are the same people, so you can't take a, a person that comes from, uh, you know, potentially an engineer from Santa Monica or something that's not used to looking at tall buildings and have them look at our tall buildings. So there's some discussion around how do we begin to have some partnerships to make sure that we have people that can evaluate those buildings that have the proper experience and understanding. Um, finally, another big part of it is looking at a downtown recovery plan and a recovery framework. So I'll go to the next, I'll go to the next slide here. The reason for this, I, I think there are many reasons for it, thinking about different events that have happened and how important recovery is. But the other reason is you think about downtown, we're looking at the tall buildings and we wanna understand the context of those tall buildings. Where are they sitting in? And you can see the red on this sort of scatter plot here shows those buildings that are higher, and you can see by age, a fair number of them are relatively new. We expect them to do okay. But your building may do perfectly fine, but if the building across the street from you fails, and you have debris around it, and you had to cordon off that building, well, your, your building that may be perfectly functional is not gonna be able to be occupied or used. So there are, very, there, there are implications for the building owners and then certainly for the neighborhoods around it. And we wanted to get that context and bring it in here, thinking again about Chinatown, Soma, um, those, those Mission Bay, those areas that have now become communities um, where, where a lot of people live. And, and I should mention, we're also gonna look at some of the demographics of people who are in the tall buildings and a lot of them tend to be seniors and older people and people with disabilities where the idea of living in a tall building where you have an elevator you can get around is very convenient, um, but it does pose challenges after an earthquake, making sure those elevators function and people can get out uh, and that you have respite centers and those things. Finally, the last slide I'll end on is, so we've put together this draft recovery task force. You know, we've been talking with Seattle that has a recovery task force. Portland is in the process of creating one. Um, FEMA has guidance that they put out three or four years ago around developing this recover, developing a recovery task force. Uh, and we started to lay out the outline of what we think, what, what one would look like in San Francisco. We have uh, a contract that is out that we're gonna be hopefully going into, uh, we'll be entering soon to begin to put together this framework and think about how San Francisco will approach the recovery um, of, of a major earthquake or any type of event. Uh, it, it would be involve, I think, a mixture of public and private uh, and nonprofit people in the leadership roles. Uh, it would be looking at a lot of these different recovery support functions the way we have emergency support functions. Um, they wouldn't match one to one, but again, when you begin to talk about recovery, it's not something that lasts for a short period of time. It can go on for five, 10, 15 plus years. 
And some aspects of recovery may be done fairly quickly in two months. In other aspects, for instance, housing, rebuilding housing, it may take several years. Um, so having said that, uh, thank you for your time. I don't know if we have, I think I'm over, so I don't think we have time for questions. Uh, that's okay, if, if anyone has any comment or question, any council members have any questions for Brian? Time for one or two. And I'm available, easy to find <laughs> afterwards. It's on online as well. Thank you. It was a great event last week, um, so thanks to you, Brian, for all your work on it. Um, are there any uh, members of the public that wish to comment on this item at this time? Okay, not seeing none, we will um, move on to uh, number five on our uh, mayoral directive 1804. Um, and also just whoever is speaking or if there are any comments, please remember to use the uh, microphones as we are televising and recording this meeting. Heather? Okay. No, I'm okay. I'll be, I'll be all right, I think. <laughs> Let's see. Um, can you hear me okay? So I'm here to report back on uh, the piece of the mayor's executive directive that our office took the lead on working in close collaboration. And let me thank straight away the Department of Emergency Management, the Department of Public Health, the mayor's office, our neighborhood empowerment network, and our city administrator for uh, making all of this work possible. Um, the, the piece that I'm talking about is the inventory of locations available for use during future poor air quality and other weather-related events. Um, the, the directive was uh, issued in the wake of the smoke event that we had last fall, but as Director Carroll was just saying, we have heat coming to us uh, as well, and those are both important types of events that we need to plan for together when we look at our buildings because the systems that treat them are related, same HVAC systems and air ventilation, cooling, so we want to um, look at these things in tandem. Also, we heard very clearly from our Department of Public Health the wisdom that, you know, of course, smoke is dangerous and smoke affects us, but it's heat that is really an acute risk in the short term, and so we want to um, be mindful of where the real uh, most pressing risks are. Oh, that format did not survive. Uh, the work that we did in our office uh, was at, uh, delivered through the heavy lift of four fellows who I want to thank and name. Um, so that'd be Joyce Ganthavorn, Alex Morrison, Chamaka Okwebu, and uh, Michael Kansuji. Uh, thanks to their Herculean data lift, um, we were able to consolidate the data we have from three different sources in the city, our emergency shelter list, our FR um, uh, facilities resource and renewal model that we use for capital planning, and our facility system of record to try to get a handle on all the buildings that were even conceivably possible so we didn't miss, leave, leave no stone unturned. That gave us 1,765 buildings. 
a lot, <laughs> too much to process. So we put some common sense screens uh, to get to a shorter list. We excluded private buildings for the short term, which we have on our shelter list to take a first pass at public buildings and see if we could solve the problem with public facilities. Um, excluded things that just on their face have an unfit use, so things like our fire stations and police stations where uh, we would not want people congregating, likewise our, our health clinics, like those things don't make sense to send people there. Uh, two small buildings, so things that were less than 900 square feet, I mean just to draw some kind of a line to exclude the standalone restrooms and other kinds of small properties that we have in those systems. And then we excluded those with no HVAC system whatsoever. So that's something that we're able to capture through our facilities resource and renewal model. Many of our buildings actually have nothing. Um, and so uh, certainly not the mechanized ventilation that we now know that we need. So after this very initial screen, we got down to a, a set of less than 10%, 143 buildings. The next follow-up was the qualitative stakeholder engagement. So thank you to all the departments on this slide and more as well. Um, you know, we asked the, the fellows reached out and asked the facility subject matter experts in all these departments to help us get to the answer as fast as possible, right? Like we could do uh, an engineer's review of every single building in our portfolio of those 143 <laughs> buildings, but like our building managers know already kind of which ones are best set up for the kind of work that a respite center would need to do. And so since we are trying to move as expeditiously as possible, asked for their insight and tried to um, get a handle on really what the, the best um, next steps would be. So thank you to everyone who contributed. Um, there is a list that emerged of buildings that are, public buildings that are ready today uh, to, to serve if activated with the proper protocols for cooling and or cleaner air respite. So you'll see that, so in this column here, the cleaner air in this, in, in this column. <laughs> Sorry, my kid had some uh, doctor's issues this morning, so I'm on call. Um, the, uh, the list for cleaner air ready facilities is much smaller than the cooling set. Um, and we know that we have work to do to uh, build this list regardless. Um, but you can see that there is some distribution across uh, the types. We know our some of, several of our libraries are well set up. Um, and we also have some cultural centers in here. Uh, the AC, African American Art and Cultural Complex, recently had its cooling system upgraded and has a relatively strong filtration system. So that's a relatively new addition to um, this set. Uh, but there's also some things that don't appear in this table that are important to consider as we like figure out how we're gonna activate in the future. Um, we know, for example, that our public pools can be an important part of our cooling response, not well suited for uh, cleaner air, right? The, vent the ventilation piece is not there, but in terms of cooling body temperature quickly, those can be valuable resources. Um, our museums and some of our performance spaces also do have good cooling. We just need to figure out the operational piece of all of this. Um, and so, you know, we wanna make sure that we are proceeding um, in alignment with all of the emergency response planning that needs to happen. 
We also asked those same subject matter experts to identify those buildings that might make good sense for near-term investment, by which we would mean places it would, the building is oriented and with the systems today to make it relatively easy to install systems like portable air conditioning and or air scrubbers. And so there is a short list for that. This is not a complete list. We know we have work to do to get to more equitable geographic distribution and make sure that we are identifying those buildings that, are, that have the kind of cultural competencies we need so that people will actually use them if they need them. So we plan to continue that work in the months ahead. But in the meantime, some candidates. Next steps. So um, this has been folded into the um, more general memo about this executive directive overall, um, but we know that we need to define respite centers, the protocols needed, the level of service that we want to have as a city and the operational requirements there, confirm this short list that we want to incorporate, which we want to incorporate into our actual response plans, um, make sure that the desired level of service that we are recommending is equitable, and uh, our office will be thinking about that over the summer. Conducting a more detailed assessment of public facilities for future investments. Like to install air conditioning in all of our major um, recreational and cultural centers, if we wanted that kind of response would be a multi, multi-million dollar effort. And uh, we need to think smart because resources in the city are you know, needed for lots of different things. Um, this most importantly, incorporating these facilities into the plans for emergency response to heat and smoke. Um, we are looking at a one-time procurement of the kind of portable systems that will make, that be like a quick activation and expansion of the network here. Uh, building a communications plan, this will be a DPH and DEM co-effort to reduce risk amongst vulnerable populations for heat and smoke. Um, training our key stakeholders on air quality and heat protocols once um, finalized. And um, lastly, considering addressing the service gap through partnership with private facilities, I think we'll hear in a minute how important the activations that um, we are able to achieve through the Neighborhood Empowerment Network and Daniel's work and all of our community partners. Uh, government will not be able to provide emergency response alone, right, in any kind of major disaster our communities are gonna be part of the first response team. And so we need to figure out how we can best support them so that the expectation is not entirely on us and also the, the response um, can be uh, distributed to those who need it. Um, finally, the planning uh, for especially vulnerable populations. I haven't here discussed um, the schools, like the schools facilities, as you know, are not, um, in the purview of the city and county's administration. However, we all saw in the last smoke event how devastating it was when the schools shut. And so we, we do really need to have detailed conversations with the school district to make sure that we are supporting them in whatever way that we can. And um, likewise for the unsheltered who do not have um, you know, easy access to indoor air in a smoke event, we wanna make sure that they are um, you know, addressed specifically in our response plans. With that, I will, this is gone. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks, uh, Francis. Just a couple comments. Thank you so much, Heather, for your work. Um, I want to acknowledge um, public health's efforts uh, over the many months last year for completing the air quality annex, and they presented last time we met in March. 
And you know, just to go over uh, the key areas, which again are to develop strategies to reach the most vulnerable populations um, around air quality exposure is to avoid exposure and to stay indoors. And then finally, that heat protocols will take precedence over air quality should we have a combined event of heat and air quality, which obviously is totally within the realm of possibility. Um, and then just a couple things about mutual aid, which is one of the directives uh, from the mayor. Um, and DM has compiled a roster of city personnel with the baseline training that's needed for future future mutual aid deployments, and in addition, identified all the training and courses that are required to continue to grow that roster. And we we are uh, working and will continue to work with city departments um, to support you in that. So right now I want to ask Francis to step forward. Francis has really been such a leader regionally. I want to thank you, Francis, for your work, and we'll hear what he's been up to the last nine months or so. Good morning, and, and thank you, Dr. Carroll. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, and, and we, before you start, Francis, why sure. don't we give the council an opportunity to ask Heather any questions or comments? Um, just a, a question for Heather and a, and a comment for, for DEM on our heat response issues before we, me, we move on. One, um, Heather, we, we should probably make sure that the Presidi Presidio's facilities are inventoried. I don't know if they were. Um, and that relates to a coordination point, Mary Ellen, mm -hmm. which is on hot weather events, people are going to go to the coast. Yeah, and we had a uh, we had a, uh, a drowning at Chrissy Field uh, uh, during one of the heat events, and I think as a city, in partnership with the National Park Service and and the Presidio, we need to decide about messaging and then making sure that the coasts are that the beaches and coast are safe, yes. because that is where people will go. Yes, uh, and so it might involve. Also, a little bit of human resources and making sure that we've got ocean-trained staff available at some of our beaches or decide that we're not going to do that at all, but then our messaging needs to be crystal clear because we're sending people to pools, right? So get in the water, get in the water, get in the water when it's hot. We really do need to make sure that our, that our, our beaches and our coastlines are, are safe. Correct. Thank you, Phil. And thank you to Rec Park for acting quickly to open the pools to everybody and making them free during our heat. I understand they were quite full. And to your point, there are lifeguards there. And um, we don't have the same situation on our coastal waters that are really not. I'm a surfer, but and I know very well they are not for swimming, really, for the vast majority of people. So thanks for your comments. OK, good morning. My name is Francis Zamora. I'm the Director of External Affairs for the San Francisco Department of Emergency Management. And I'm actually very excited today to present um, an update on the regional messaging component of our executive directive. What you have before you today, and this is, uh, this, uh, I would say this document involved a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, is, uh, is a, dra a revision, uh, a revised draft of the Bay Area Regional Air Quality Messaging Toolkit. And the purpose of this toolkit is to ensure that cities and counties throughout the Bay Area have clear, consistent and accurate messaging when it relates to air quality emergencies. The last thing we want during these type of events is for our different city and counties to be saying different things on how to stay safe, maybe guidance on masks, um, where to go during these, these air quality events. And unfortunately, that's, that's kind of what happened you know, over the past two years. And so this effort was really um, a lot of work to try to 
you know, gain consensus throughout the region on what the appropriate uh, public information and protective health measures are. And so I'm going to kind of talk about how we got there. And so first of all, this, um, this the executive directive came in December, but we started doing some research and information gathering in February and through April. So we distributed surveys throughout the region to public information officers, to community-based organizations, to elected officials to get their input on what they, what they saw during the air quality events, the type of information that they saw, what was put out, what they would like to see, what would be helpful for them. Um, we also got um, a lot of great information from subject matter ex experts in this area. So the Association of Bay Area Health Officers, and I, I want to do a big shout out to Dr. Jan Gurley here, who helped facilitate and helped get um, consensus from the health officers on what the appropriate protective health measures are for, for air quality events. So we got, we, got, um, we got a lot of input there. During that time, we developed a draft toolkit, which was, which was uh, reviewed by regional partners. And one really important thing here is that we put it to the test. And so in, on, in May, there was, a, uh, there was a regional. OK, I'm going to take a pause here. We have the mayor. And uh, she's going to do some commendations for people that did a lot of great work. Thank you. Well, welcome, Mayor Breed. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to stop for a second, as Francis said, and return to item number three, which is our special commendations to recognize our community partners and agencies that went above and beyond during our recent heat ad um, advisory. We've been talking about vulnerable populations since we started this conversation and this meeting. And honestly, we cannot do it without our community partners. I'm so honored to have you here. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Mayor Breed. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Ellen. Thank you, everyone, for being here today. Um, I remember when, I think, was it the year before last, when we had one of the first heat waves, uh, one that we knew was coming but didn't really understand how significant it would be uh, because it wasn't something that uh, we as a city was used to. Um, we love San Francisco because we love the cold weather, probably. Um, but we all know that climate change is real, and there are a number of issues that are impacting our environment, and that includes you know, challenges with wildfires, the issues around um, you know, unanticipated uh, increases in temperatures, um, which has really uh, put us in a, a different situation. I remember when I was on the Board of Supervisors, we had hearings to talk about, well, you know, where did we go wrong um, in this process uh, to respond and address the issues to support our residents, but in particular, our very vulnerable communities, um, especially our seniors. And at that time, um, so many of the departments came together to talk about ways to work with our community-based organizations to improve our response uh, to addressing um, any type of challenge, whether it's changes in air quality or changes to our temperatures or what have you, uh, we wanted to be prepared for any situation. And uh, you all answered the call. And I know that I put out an executive directive uh, last year um, when the wildfires hit and there were challenges with temperatures. And, you know, without hesitation, so many of these incredible nonprofit organizations and City College and the Interfaith Council and others um, just really stepped up to the plate and made 
uh, either facilities available, uh, provided uh, bilingual notifications to communities, did wellness checks, uh, and the kinds of things that we needed to do to make sure um, that there was no loss of life um, during this process, and we checked in on our most vulnerable citizens uh, throughout San Francisco. And um, in my mind, I knew I wanted to see this happen, and you all made it a, a reality. Um, and so today is really about the organizations who stepped up um, and went beyond the call of duty uh, to ensure the safety of so many residents in San Francisco. Um, just a quick example, I remember at that press conference um, uh, the year before last, and one of the things I mentioned was, you know, meals on wheels or in-home support services, and those individuals who have direct interaction with some of our seniors on a regular basis in our disabled community, we need to put in place the kinds of um, systems to ensure that um, as they're delivering those meals or checking in on those individuals or taking care of those folks that we're able to say these people are okay or they need some additional assistance in some capacity. Um, in addition to that, one of the other things that was talked about was uh, rec and park facilities and, and opening up our libraries and other places and museums and places where um, we know that there was air conditioner because you know, I know, I'm sure you all have the same experience in your own personal uh, apartments or homes. Uh, no air conditioner <laughs> exists in San Francisco, almost in any, any homes, and uh, fans were sold out all over the place. But um, at the end of the day, we have to make sure that our public facilities, which actually have air conditioner, are available to the public uh, during extended hours, and so many of our departments uh, went above and beyond to make sure uh, that the places we have in our city were available to people. And so um, we uh, have improved what we uh, provide in terms of outreach and support to the residents of San Francisco. We have made um, you know, things a lot better. Uh, things are truly organized and it's really about the relationship between uh, the city departments, the nonprofit agencies, the community and all of us coming together uh, to really um, rise to the occasion when a, a disaster um, hits uh, of any kind. And so I know that this is what this council is, is about, um, addressing those concerns and, and getting prepared for things that we know are going to come. An earthquake, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We know uh, we live in earthquake territory and so we could prepare for something of that nature. Um, you know, and now we have, you know, some other things that we're going to need to uh, better prepare for uh, in the future, and, and this is just a start. And I just want to say thank you to all the agencies and organizations um, and people who really went above and beyond the call of duty uh, to ensure uh, the safety and well-being of so many San Franciscans. It means a lot. Um, and we truly appreciate it, and that's why today uh, we want to take a moment um, to really honor you because sometimes uh, I think we don't realize, we, we just go on about our lives, we're working hard, everyone's focused on their jobs, but um, sometimes we need to stop and pause and recognize the significance of what has been accomplished because of the work of so many incredible organizations. And so that's what today is about. And with that, I want to turn it over to... Mary Ellen to um, name the uh, different organizations and their roles and uh, we'll do photos and certificates and we'll clap and we'll have a good time for a change. Um, 
you know. But then right after we're done, we'll get right back to work on the very important job of ensuring that San Francisco uh, remains prepared uh, for anything that comes our way. And thank you all so much for playing an important role in, in doing just that. So, Mary Ellen. Okay, thank you so much. So I'm gonna just call out the um, organizations and the representative and please come on up and get your certificate. So um, start out with, we have Bayview Senior, Senior Services, um, Hunters Point Adult Day Health Center, Renika Butler. City College of San Francisco, Chancellor Mark Rocha. Homebridge, Mark Burns. IT Bookman Community Center, Felicia Thibodeau. Intelleride, Jonathan Chang. San Francisco Interface Council, Michael Pappas. Rebuilding Together San Francisco, Karen Nesmick. Senior Center, Kalita Walling and Kaina Lee. SF Marin Food Bank, Andy Burns. Self-Help for the Elderly, Winnie Yu. <laughs> SF Voad, Meredith Trell. 
United Council of Human Services, Mother Brown's Kitchen, Gwendolyn Westbrook. I believe that's everyone. Can we get a, oh, is there more? Is there on and then there's a scan there. Oh. Wheels on Wheels and in-home kitchen services. Yes, okay, sorry, I ran out of time. Meals on Wheels, who did an incredible job for us. And finally, San Francisco In-Home Support Services uh, Public Authority. Please come up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, group applause for everyone. Thank you so much. Oh, we're going to do one group photo. So if everyone uh, could come up, and then we'll return to business. is over with <laughs> time to get back to work but again thank all of you for everything that um, you are all doing to keep us safe it means a lot and congratulations to all the great organizations uh, for the work that you have already done but the work that you will continue to do when we need you so thank you so much for being here today thanks everybody Okay, Victor. I, uh, Victor, sorry. Francis, you're in. You're on. Go. Okay, so um, in talking about the public information toolkit, uh, it was also important to get regional buy-in and regional review. And so I uh, want to kind of talk about the different regional partners that helped develop this toolkit as well as reviewed it. So we had the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. As I mentioned, the Association of Bay Area Health Officers the Regional Asthma Management and Prevention Association, 
the Regional Joint Information System, which is the public information officers from throughout the Bay Area, the uh, County of, of Alameda Office of Sustainability, and of course our own Bay Area Urban Area Security Initiative participated in this process as well. Um, now you can't develop a toolkit and think it's going to work uh, during an emergency if you don't test it. And so we were fortunate to have the opportunity to test it at the California Region 2 Multi-Agency Coordination Exercise and Tabletop uh, that focused exclusively on air quality. So there were uh, health officers, city officials, public information officers that were responding to a simulated air quality emergency. And they utilized this toolkit to help push out public, public messaging. Now, it helped us gain a lot of valuable insight on the user experience, on the usability of the toolkit, as well as some of the messaging that we had. Uh, now, uh, I, I did talk about this already, um, but now, how is this toolkit organized, right? How is this going to be useful for people? And so part one includes some of our core messages, some of the messaging principles, and then templates for use during air quality emergencies. So they can be FAQs, fact sheets, short messages, long messages, press releases, Twitter posts um, that can be used uh, by any jurisdiction within the Bay Area. And they are, you know, organized by audience. So we can have messages for schools. We can have messages for people doing special events. We have messages from uh, employees to employ, uh, from employers to employees. So these are all critical things that our surveys were asking for. Uh, part two is also very important. It is a, for, for all intents and purposes, a best practices, uh, best practices guide for communicating with the whole community. So people with disabilities, people that are hard to reach, are most vulnerable. How are we reaching out to them and how are we making sure that people that aren't necessarily connected um, through, the tra through the traditional media, through social media, electronically, are, how are we reaching them and, and uh, really going that last mile? So what's next? Uh, from today to July 22nd, uh, we're going to have an open review period uh, throughout the region where people will comment on the toolkit and provide further feedback. Any feedback received by July 22nd will be part of the final draft. Uh, the final draft will be available in early August and posted to the UASI website. Now, what I want to say about this final draft is um, we're, all, we already, we're already starting to see some input about usability of it, and so we're going to kind of streamline it a little bit more to make it more useful during an emergency. The other important thing is this toolkit will also be translated in the threshold languages for the Bay Area. So we have accessible information um, for, all, for our entire population. And then finally, once we produce this toolkit, we want to make sure people know how to use it, right? And so we're going to have webinars throughout the region talking to public information officers and municipal officials about you know, where this toolkit is, how you can use it during the next air quality emergency. With that said, um, are there any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any public comment on this item? Okay, so we will move on to um, item number six, which is uh, the report on the city and county's planning efforts related to PG&E's public safety power shutoff program. Before we jump into this, I was remiss in not acknowledging um, 
an important person, an important event here. Uh, we have a new fire chief, Janine Nicholson, and this is her first disaster council as chief, and so it is worthy of note. So I wanna welcome you and say how happy I am to work with you, sister, and to have you <laughs> by my side in our efforts here in the city. Um, so please say a few words and introduce your staff if you would like. Victor Wersch is here. <laughs> Deputy Chief of Administration, Jose Velo is here. And the guy really in charge of the disasters, Assistant Deputy Chief of Homeland Security, Mike Hoffman. Thank you so much. So uh, the North Bay fires of 2017 and eight, 2018 caused unprecedented damage um, and significant loss of life, as we're all well aware. In response to this tragedy, PG&E has recently instituted and be, been approved by the CP, CPUC um, to move forward with the public safety power shutoff program wherein they may de-energize power transmission lines and, and distribution lines during certain climate uh, conditions and weather conditions to decrease the possibility of fire starting. Um, as noted, the CPUC approved this adoption of the guidelines for this as a preventative measure against imminent and significant fire risk. San Francisco is considered a tier one, which is the lowest risk for fire, but the transmission lines that bring our power run through the East Bay Hills and also th up the peninsula which both are tier two and tier three, which are much higher risk areas. What that means is that turning off any, uh, either side, the transmission lines, whether it's south or, uh, or east, could lead to blackout conditions in San Francisco. These, um, this loss of power outage could be at least 24 hours and potentially significantly longer. DEM and other city agencies have been taking steps to plan for managing the consequences of these potential power outages. Uh, just last week, we had over 120 participants um, from city departments uh, to, that came together at Bill Graham um, to really sit down and work through uh, preparedness and coordination looking at the impacts of these. Um, I'm going to turn this over now to Bijan Karimi, who is our Acting De uh, Deputy Director for Emergency Services, and he will continue to talk to you a little bit about what we've, what we've been working on. Thank you, Director Carroll. <clears throat> when we brought everyone together, we had three primary objectives. We wanted to gather information about what the potential impact of this PSPS might look like, and we also wanted to make sure we were sharing information among departments so that they knew what the consequences might be and what steps they would need to take. And that third piece was form a future preparedness activities for what the city could do. And what we're gonna do is show you a quick video of what actually took place last Thursday. And then I'll talk to you when we come back about some of the next, uh, some of our learnings and what some of those next steps are. We are here today, uh, we have almost every city and county of San Francisco department represented 
to prepare for the possibility of power shutdowns, complete loss of electric power to San Francisco as a result of PG&E's public safety power shutoff program. This program is intended to mitigate the effects of wildfires. San Francisco is not so much at risk of those fires, but due to the configuration of the electric grid, should they have to do transmission shutoffs in the East Bay or on the peninsula, San Francisco can be affected. We have all of our major public safety departments, fire, police, sheriff. We also have the health department, all of our infrastructure departments, the PUC and public safety, including our support departments. The power outage will affect everyone um, and our ability to perform city services. So it was important to have all the representatives from across city programs here today. We and DPH are working very closely with the rest of the city to help people prepare. For us and DPH, we really want people to make a plan, and especially to make a plan with the people they care about. It's time to reach out to your neighbors, to think about your best circle of people. In a disaster, it is trust that saves lives. And that is why in DPH, we are working with all of our partners as fast as we can to put together a network to respond in a disaster. We're having really productive conversations around the tables here today. I think one of the most um, fruitful results is our expanded understanding of the interdependencies of different departments and infrastructure, as an example. Communications will be disrupted, so how do we coordinate when we don't have our normal modes of communication? Fuel, transportation, traffic lights will be out. It will be difficult to get around town. We have a lot of follow-up after this meeting um, and a lot more work to do, but this is a great first step for San Francisco. Thank you to... Um, SFGTV for helping us pull to, uh, together that, that brief. So as Mary Ellen, a lot of stuff is going to happen. We need to know more about it. And so some of the key takeaways that she mentioned are the significant impact to public safety and to our health system. Right? We are so dependent on power now to uh, the big agencies that are going to be impacted. The routine forms of communication these devices calling our public t uh, cell towers on data systems, they're also all going to be impacted. We also heard about challenges traveling. People don't respect that four-way stop when the lights go out, and so we know citywide it's going to be really challenging to, um, to get around the city. We're also going to have um, other disruptions because something like childcare centers, they may not be able to function. So having our own staff come to work, that's going to be a challenge. And there'll be some extended operational periods. We're not just asking folks to come in and work for that eight hours. We may have to expand that. When we don't have power, one of the other things that we'll be relying on is fuel. Fuel for the vehicles, fuel for our generators. And we know that's going to be a scarce resource. Mary Ellen mentioned that we are not going to be the only ones facing this. If our power is out, other people's power is out as well. And so this is going to be a Bay Area concern and one that we need to make sure that we can get ahead of. And that also, and this was one of those learning elements, power outages are going to require a time for recovery. Just because the lights and the power comes back on doesn't mean 
that everything is going to be fine. We need to make sure if there were individuals that may have been specifically impacted that we're reaching out to them. If there are data systems that may have been impacted by an automatic shutoff, that those are brought up properly. And so things aren't going to go back to normal immediately. So from those observations, what we did, we took a look at well, what's next. And we looked at our people, processes that we need to have, and then technology. And for people, in particular, it's working and making sure that we're extending out to our other private sector partners, vendors, and contractors. What are their plans, the people that we depend on? How are we going to coordinate with CBOs and other groups to make sure that neighbors are helping neighbors and they're checking on one another during the event and then after the event? And also cross-train staff. If transportation isn't working, are there other staff members who might be able to provide some of those frontline services? which goes along with departments identifying those essential business functions that they have, what are the continuity of operations plans that they have. And that's part of the process, revisiting their COOP plans, identifying uh, perhaps functions that can be done remotely. Maybe not all the Bay Area is out. Is, can someone be at home using their uh, personal devices and somehow access systems and still um, process things? Um, and then um, should we need to, using paper, Going back to paper forms, we, we heard while it was a cyber attack that happened in Baltimore, they went back to paper forms to process things, and that may be something that we need to consider. And then on the technology and equipment side is we have a lot of fuel in the city. How do we get what's in the ground out of the ground, looking at ways that we can use that resource while we're getting additional um, sources brought in? Uh, also talking to capital planning about what are some investments we can make now, uh, perhaps for solar and storage, so that we have some other backups available. And then also integrating, if we need to, the replacement of electronics if, if things go down. So those are some of the initial uh, things that we identified from this exercise. But this isn't the only workshop we're going to do. Some of our follow-up steps are in the middle of July. We'll be meeting with our private sector and also CBOs to talk to them about what we've heard from PG&E, what the city's doing, and how we're all going to be working together and as the mayor uh, mentioned before, um, the frequency of these events may come up. And I know um, something that Director Carroll had mentioned before is often this type of event doesn't happen in isolation. It's often happening when it's hot and when there may, may be an air quality event. And we've heard about all these other things that we're doing. If we have this unfortunate trifecta, this is certainly going to put a lot of strain on our resources. And so this is just the first step that we're going to be taking with several others to make sure that we as city departments and as a city family can all work together. Director. Thank you, Bijan. Uh, does anyone have any questions or comments? Uh, I want to I thank everyone who participated. Um, I, I, I believe it was a good use of time. I'm, I'm very cognizant about bringing all these city salaried people into the room and not wasting our time. Um, but we do have some good uh, follow-up. And as Bijan said, we'll be meeting with our private sector partners in a couple weeks. And um, however, we have to be ready to flex at any time. We've already had the first uh, heat wave. and. PG&E already implemented their program, luckily, in the North Bay when that happened, which doesn't affect us. Um, the fact is that we're most likely to be affected if the conditions are a little bit closer on the peninsula and the, in the East Bay, which is why I think we have to be prepared for the, as you say, trifecta effect of this. And um, so I just want to thank everyone for coming together. Um, one of the, I, I'm trying to find a silver lining in all of this, and I think one, one of those, I've been talking about this a lot, um, 
and uh, feeling like I'm bumming everyone out all the time. But I think one of the great things about this and that we will accomplish over this summer is increased preparedness. The data shows that when there is an actual event or a truly perceived threat, that people take action. And so I think the call to action to everybody in this room and anyone who is watching this is a call to action um, to, to do something. Get your plan together. Reach out to your neighbor. Think through your mind what would happen if you do not have electric power for one, two, three days. And take some steps now, if you are able, to prepare yourself. This is going to be the most important thing that we can do. Frankly, the conditions that we'll experience after an event like this are similar and would be worse after an earthquake. And so this, this uh, if, we, if, if nothing else happens, my hope is Carl the Fog stays around all summer. We spend a lot of time getting ready, and we're just a, that much further along when the rains come again. So um, thank you. I want to open it up to public comment, if there is any on this item. OK, seeing none. Oh, I'm sorry. Please. I'm sorry, can you use the microphone? Um, thank you, my name is Nick McCoy. So I just wanted to one, uh, make sure that you don't understate the value of the, the staffs, the people that you work with, or the folks who have actually you know, served as a support and done the research, made the calls, um, put up with the late hours, or actually even put up with fun, sometimes with people who don't have the same level of knowledge as you may have in your careers or in your time that you've spent on the subject or you spent in the city. Um, like, none of the ideas, none of the theories would be worth anything without your structural help and processes to put that in place. So that's part of, like, the integration of your talk, uh, what you're talking about in the interagency work. Um, and I think um, working with state partners as well and other international organizations who may have some sort of the resources or have some sort of the stake in seeing how we deal with uh, our upcoming challenges or the things that we already faced, which I think opens up new revenue streams as well. Um, it also produces an opportunity for us to grow, I think, scientifically as well as like just the hypothesis of what could happen. Um, I, you, know, you guys, is, uh, all of the presentations were sound and like the information was great. Um, and, like I just wonder if like, humbly I say is like the, the worst case scenario. What's it like if we don't succeed? Um, and like what do those numbers look like? And are we prepared to just have that sort of conversation prior to with the community at large? Um, and then like dealing with, you know, what's the hard escape? If we have to like vacate a particular part of the city or have to like um, change our strategy in regards to whether or not we go up, down, out. Um, and then like even like the scale of like equipment that could possibly be used or need to be used um, if we have to do something major of this nature. Um, where would we store that? Um, and you know, that sort of like production, I think there are entities out there like you've already mentioned who are interested in building cities for their own corporate purposes. So they can say that they can build a perfect city. But you guys already did that for hundreds of years. Like the work has already been put piece by piece in the place. Anyways, thank you. I just look forward to participating in the conference. Thank you. Do we have any other public comment? 
Okay, seeing none, we'll move on to number seven, the Disaster Council member roundtable. So if anyone around the table of our Disaster Council members has an announcement, Michael? Sure. Um, over the last several months, uh, the San Francisco Interfaith Council, in collaboration with major faith institutions, have been hosting uh, uh, vigils following terrorist attacks on houses of worship. Uh, the mayor has been faithfully attending and and offering comfort at each of those vigils. And if she has said anything that has been consistent at each of these vigils, it's that people should feel safe when they go to worship. And as a result of that, we're responding and we're taking action. We've assembled a steering committee uh, comprised of the FBI, San Francisco Police Department, San Francisco Sheriff's Office, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, the Asian Law Caucus, Muslim Community Center, the San Francisco Human Rights Commission, the Jewish Federation, uh, Department of Emergency Management, Department of Public Health, uh, the uh, Archdiocese with the support of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, and the San Francisco Foundation. Uh, it's a it's an incredible group of folk, and what we're looking to do is early September, we have a date and we have a location. We're gonna be having a workshop uh, for congregation leaders to provide them with the resources that they need uh, to keep their houses of worship safe. And, uh, and uh, in, the, in the event that something should happen locally here, we've taken that initiative. Thank you, Michael. That's so incredibly important. Thank you for your leadership on that. Is there anyone else? Yeah. Um, about two weeks ago, I got notice from our chief medical examiner that he will be uh, moving on to another county. And so today is his last day in the office. And as of today, we're going to start a, a national recruitment. But in the interim, we'll, we'll have uh, acting chief medical examiner be Dr. Amy Hart. And uh, the assistant acting chief medical examiner will be Dr. Ellen Moffat. Thank you. We'll keep you updated. Thanks, Naomi. Anyone else? Okay, and any general public comment we haven't already heard? Then we will adjourn the meeting. Thank you all for being here.